Welcome to another episode of Talking Metaverse presented by Immersal. I'm Tan. I'm here with Matthias Koski, who is the head of global sales at Immersal. How's Hello. Matthias? Yeah, very well. Living the dream. Living the dream. All right. And our guest today is Mr. Terry XR Schusler. He's a senior director at Deutsche Telekom. Okay, so Terry, um, you're the senior director, XR and Metaverse division. So can you tell us a little bit about what does that involve? What does that mean? Sure. Well, I mean, to, to get context, I'll give you the, the, the really quick background on my journey um, to get there. Um, so first the earth cooled, then the dinosaurs. Came. No, that's not the quick journey. Sorry. Let me give you the, the short one. Um, if the earth didn't cool, you wouldn't be here. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've been doing software development um, since I taught myself how to program computers at the age of 12. Um, I won't tell you how many years ago it was, but a couple few decades. Um, and uh, so I've, I've done a lot of consumer products, a lot of technology based uh, software uh, my vision has always been about how to uh, utilize advancing technologies to enable better human-to-human -human communications. And um, my journey led me through to join Deutsche Telekom in 2016, where I started focusing on B2B innovation um, using cutting-edge immersive technologies. But that quickly transitioned to my desire to um, make it possible for us to transform the human experience from um, focusing on the mobile phone as the centerpiece of all interaction models to uh, head-worn devices. So I've been kind of trying to bring the company forward on that journey. And in the course of that, that, you know, enabled me to sort of focus in on both the network side of things, 5G, edge computing, the middleware stack, um, enabling uh, the user experiences, and then the actual end devices and the technologies to enable the devices to be more performant, smaller, more um, uh, uh, human-centric in their function and their experience. So that uh, made me sort of become the de facto AR glasses guy at the, at the company several years ago. And um, I had kind of described my role as focusing on spatial computing, but I think because of the vernacular of the word metaverse be becoming so important, to everybody, uh, just you know, became natural. So I changed it to be XR and Metaverse, uh, just to make it clear to people the relationship that I had in the company to the technology and the use cases and stuff like that. So um, generally, I, I focus on the technical side of things, um, both all, all the whole end-to-end -end pipeline from the network core all the way right up to the very edge of the sensor on the device. Um, and looking at ways that we can grow the value to the developer ecosystem, to our customers, uh, both the enterprise and consumer customers, and to the ecosystem at large. And I do a lot of work with large uh, strategic partners as well as innovation partners to try to you know, further that vision. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry, Matthias. Yeah, I was going to ask that, like, what is now the most hottest topic around metaverse kind of like what kind of exciting things you're now working on well I, I think there's still a journey where we're trying to understand what metaverse means what it is you know in in, in 2020 you had collaboration software in 2021 metaverse in 2020 you had a social website in 2021 it's called the metaverse in 2020 you had a shopping site 
where you could go and shop with your friends and now it's a metaverse and so on. So everything's been pivoted and rebranded as metaverse, which creates tons of confusion and lack of clarity about what the heck is a metaverse or the metaverse. So actually earlier this year um, in working on a internal briefing for our senior executives on the advancing of uh, XR and metaverse technologies and trying to click clarity on what things are, what does Web3 really represent, things like that. Um, my key focus was and has always been to try to create commonality and understanding about certain things. And so I started with the word metaverse. You know, one of the things that was driving me crazy late last year was the fact that it was being used as a singular and a plural at the same time. Really hard to create clarity for people when you like, are you talking about all the metaverses, that metaverse, the metaverse, you know? So I started with the simplistic approach where I said, um, the word metaverse with a capital M represents the singularity, the container of all others. Um, there's only one of those and it's not an object or a thing that anyone owns or anything. It's just a, con it's a concept. And then the lowercase metaverse um, is simply a, an experience that a company or a person has built or a group has built and, and made available um, to be used by themselves, by others, whatever. And it's inside the collective, yeah. right? So uh, I think that really simple definition, and then by de by definition, what is the lowercase metaverse is really just a sort of multi-person 3D mm. user experience. Does not need to be on a head-worn device. Would be better and more ideal if it was, but mm. could work on a mobile phone or any other flat display. So I think that interesting point of mm. contention for some people, right? Because a lot of people say, well, if it's 3D, it's got to be on head-worn. Otherwise, it's not really yeah. a metaverse. So I've been more recently referring to that as the immersive metaverse to say that that experience is a version of a metaverse that's ex that's that's differentiated by its level of immersion it, whether you get uh, immersion in the sense of multi multimodal input you know my eyes my mouth speaking my hands moving my body as an interaction device drives the user experience and i also could get haptic feedback you know, another sort of input spatial audio and other experiences, visual and other that make the experience feel more immersive. I feel more digitally present in it. And so that's been really the key thing that I, I think has started a clear journey within Deutsche Telekom about, okay, if we agree on this definition for the, for the time being, it may evolve just like the word internet evolved. Hmm. Um, but we could at least put a stake in the ground for the year and say, okay, this is our definition. And, and then how do we move forward based on that? and have commonality of language when we're talking about a metaverse versus the metaverse. That is so and now when we have def yeah, now, now like when we have defined the metaverse world, like yeah. how, how telcos will make money out yeah. of that? So well, we, I right. So we look at this as a full end to end experience. So we look at all the places where we can bring value. Um, and of course, you know, make, make business, right. So there's both, mm -hmm. both aspects to it. So, um, you know, on the on the on the core of the network, you know, it's not just about five G. Five G is the current you know wireless cellular technology standard, but you know it'll be six G in the near future and so on. It's mm -hmm. going to evolve. Um, but there's also edge computing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also fixed line connectivity, uh, and and there's satellite. There's there's other types of connectivity, right? So we look generically at the vehicle of connectivity and figure out ways that we can make that vehicle metaverse ready. How do we make it possible to deliver um, really consistent uh, um, 
quality of experience for people. So in the past, when we deal with the internet and we're browsing websites, we get sort of best effort user experiences. The user makes a request, the website tries to load, it gets there when it gets there, the user may or may not be still there when it gets there, and we move forward. Um, when you're dealing with a, uh, a stateless experience like that, that's fine. But when you get into the idea of a metaverse being a stateful, always on, always active, persistent experience or concept, um, then the quality of uh, the best effort experience isn't good enough. And so here we have to start looking at how do we make it um, uh, possible to create an optimum, consistent journey for the user when they go into an application and metaverse experience and start interacting with others. Um, so we, we focus in on you know, bandwidth, latency, mm -hmm. jitter, mm -hmm. and density. Those are really four big areas. And then in general, that ag in aggregate allows us to focus in on reliability and quality of experience. So a lot of people think that 5G is just about bandwidth. If you ask 100 people what's the top three reasons that 5G exists, the only answer they're going to give you is bandwidth and then bandwidth and then bandwidth. Maybe they might say upstream bandwidth and downstream bandwidth and total yeah. bandwidth, but they don't really have any other perspective. And so Part of this journey has been to um, understand that and to communicate to people the value of uh, other aspects of our, or where we can improve. So Deutsche Telekom, we started working with other partners like Ericsson and Nokia um, to evolve global um, standards, new standards that can enable us to create this more um, consistent quality experience. So there's an, um, an, without getting overly technical, there's an IETF standard called L4S. Um, and uh, we implemented as managed latency with L4S. And the basic idea of L4S, very simplistic, is when I ask for data to come from a server somewhere across the internet, uh, and that data is coming through a radio tower to my mobile phone, um, I don't know anything about the condition of the network. My application just gets the data when it gets it. That's the best effort experience. But when I um, utilize this new standard, um, the piece of software that sits in the radio that tries to fairly distribute the bandwidth of the network connection to all of the people that are connected to the radio at a given time. So everybody gets a fair shake at getting mm -hmm. their data in an efficient and time sensitive manner. It's called a scheduler. And the scheduler looks at what's going on inside and, say, and says, you know what, I'm, I'm filling up with data and I'm not able to push it out fast enough. I'm getting congested. And when it gets congested, it's able to take the packets of data that are being queued up for delivery but aren't getting there on time and mark them with a little bit that says that this packet of data was in a congested state. And so it didn't get to you on its time that it was supposed to be. And so what this simplistically allows you to do is you can build an application that can look at the packets of data that are coming from a video stream or an audio stream or whatever, and understand the network condition and actually react to it. So if we start computing that, you know, 50% of the packets of data that are coming through are, are, are marked con with congestion, then we know that we're asking the network to do more than it can. And that means that our quality of experience is going to be less than desirable for the user. It means we're gonna to have to drop frames of video because we didn't get the packets for the frame in time. It means that the audio might get choppy and actually you might even have dropouts. So to address this, the application now can go and change what the server's doing 
doing flow control. It's like a thermostat controls a, a, a heating uh, ventilation air conditioning system, HVAC. Um, and so in this model, we can go back to the server and say, you know what, I'm pulling your this video stream at five megabits per second, but I'm not getting the data fast enough. So let's drop it to two and a half. And then we can continuously check the packets and look to see if they're still being marked congested or not. So we can look for an algorithmic way to create an optimum user experience. And so it's better to get a lower quality frame of video than to drop it, right? It's better to reduce the sampling rate of audio than to drop it. Um, and there are other things you can do besides that. That's a simplistic example that's really focused on bandwidth, but there are other aspects to this. So this radio standard is like one of the, you know, in the core of the network, but not as a Deutsche Telekom only thing. You know, we're helping to co-invent it, but literally it's going to be a global standard over the next two years. We'll roll it out early. We'll look at ways that we can optimize the network for different classes of applications utilizing that technology. And we're even working with partners like NVIDIA and others to integrate L4S support into their core technology so that when we build applications on top of them, we're giving the user the most optimum, highest quality of experience we possibly can. And since most of those technology partners are focused on you know, remote rendering, AR, VR use cases, or things that are gonna be immersive user experiences in the, in, in, the, in the metaverse experience, then it really matters. So that's wow. the core. Then we, work, <laughs> then we work up from there. And then we start looking at the, uh, the frameworks, you know, Unity, Unreal Engine, Niantic Lightship, Qualcomm Snapdragon Spaces, NVIDIA Omniverse and CloudXR, all of these things that a lot of the application developers that are building metaverse experiences are sitting on top of, right? There's stacks that's, you know, on top of those, those foundations. And we, we, you know, we want to optimize and test and improve the network. So we're doing labs where we're working with these partners and others who are building applications on those tech stacks to, mm -hmm. to test, to try out hypotheses, to push the envelope and find ways that we can optimize the network experience uh, for everybody. Uh, and even working like Apple has integrated in iOS 16, they now have L4S support um, in the released version of iOS 16. So that means that we can start to showcase to developers how, the, how to take advantage of that in Swift and in Unity projects. And we're working on projects like that now. Yeah. That's quite impressive. Yeah. It's, it's exciting <laughs> because it's, it's hard work and it's kind of nerdy and, that is, yeah. but it but it, it's an inside out impact that can really change the game for people and we've demonstrated this at like mobile world congress earlier this year we showed remote rendering a video game and it, you know with a boat racing game and it's just dramatically different when there's any kind of interruption of the flow on the network because of congestion you know you see that kind of jerk the boat jerks around like this and it doesn't feel comfortable <laughs> and it's not enjoyable Right, and then when you start putting this kind of flow control mechanism in there, and you're intelligently working with the network, it's a game changer. I mean, it really, really is. So we're not a stupid pipe; we're a very smart pipe, um, and that's the big transformation that I've been trying to focus in on is, you know, to change people's perspective of of telcos as big dumb pipes, uh, and you know, we're trying to be really intelligent pipes that you have to work smartly with. Mm. Exciting. Mm. Now Dan yeah. is confused. So I many know. technical details. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> recapping in my brain. That was uh, interesting. So, so you, <laughs> so you, 
you talked about the foundations right and you're working on the on the network but there are right. some established foundations already correct there's some technical standards that we can work with and then there's also the biggest problem though is the interoperability and open standards so you know there's silo standards right you know unity has their way of doing things and their way of doing networking you know and then you know epic with unreal engine has a different way of doing things but when it gets to also like dealing with devices, right? So when you're trying to build something as a software developer, you don't want to build it, you know, uniquely for every single head-worn device that ever comes out. It's not ideal. It's the world that we have been living in for the last 10 years. Nobody likes it, exactly. you know? Um, and so this, this led us into doing this partnering activity with Qualcomm around Snapdragon Spaces so that we could start to deploy one time in the software stack and hit all the devices that can support that. And that also sits on top of OpenXR. So it's taking advantage of that standard, that industry benefit, just as others are doing that. You know, even uh, Meta with the Quest has adopted OpenXR underneath the hood. And so the, but the bigger thing is in a journey I started last October um, was the work on building industry consensus around emerging standards that have to be developed and, 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 and created to allow for freely moving around in the metaverse with a capital M, being able to move from one place to another freely. Mm -hmm. The same way that we can today go from one web page to another with a link and a standardized URI, URL. Mm -hmm. So this journey um, started with a set of plenaries of discussions that we did um, called MetaTraversal. And then um, more recently this year, it's been involved as the Metaverse Standards Forum, which is headed up by the Kronos Group uh, President, Neil Trevet, and now has like 2000 members just in, in the last four months. Um, almost everybody in the industry has signed up to be part of that because it will act as an umbrella organization to create consensus across all the standards organizations and all the key silo players that, you know, these things matter. Um, we drove the storyline being that we have to think people first. That's the entire concept of the decentralized web. Um, mm -hmm. It's people first, not companies first. And even in that context, you can still make a business and you can still grow a company, but you think differently about the way you design software, the way that you specify standards for software. And so the, the Metaverse Standards Forum, which is available at metaverse-standards.org, is really focusing on these customer or, or, or user-centric, user-first uh, topics like 3D assets and customer and, and, and avatars and customer identity and privacy. And this is going to be the key to enabling us to have what we really want, which is this ability to just literally you know, glide our way through uh, you know, a whole bunch of different metaverse experiences rather than feeling that we have to go and aggregate ourselves into one player's uh, version of that, right? So, and there's people who really don't want to be just living in one place. I mean, there's some that would stay in a Disney metaverse all day long and be totally happy, but mm -hmm. most people want to be able to go in and out. Exactly. And so that's part of what I'm really focusing on. Uh, as well as enabling the developers on the technical side to reach the uh, widest possible audience with their engineering work, supporting initiatives like we're doing with Qualcomm on Snapdragon Spaces, but then also, you know, trying to drive consensus and vision around the value of these open standards and the value of interoperability and how it benefits not just 
the user, but also the companies that it's a complete inversion of what has been the web two thinking model, right? Which has always been the other way around. We're grabbing your data. We're going to figure it out. We're going to make a business out of that. Now it's going to be the other way around. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Just on the terminology, I love what you said about, um, I made a note here, a metaverse and the metaverse. Right. Um, like you say, the metaverse should be all the world's interoperating. Yeah, it's a, so collect it's a collective really concept. Yeah. So shouldn't we have a separate name? Like we have the internet yeah. and yeah. then we have websites and we have yeah. applications yeah we don't have different internets like yeah that is not an yeah. internet youtube yep. is not an internet so yeah yeah it's you're totally right it's uh you know i've grown up with the computer industry um i've uh, rarely seen such a bad um uh destruction of language <laughs> you know um yeah it's it, it's a problem we're gonna we're gonna but you know what it'll get it'll fix itself because yeah organically users will tell us what it's called. And it's interesting because you have the same problem with augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, extended reality. You know, I think that'll get changed too. I mean, right now I just kind of work with the umbrella XR, but you know, it's also been called ambient computing, spatial computing, you know, right. So what is it? Right. Yeah. And I think customers will find a word or a phrase that resonates with them and organically. That'll be what we call it because actually it wasn't called the internet. Exactly. I was originally it was called the World Wide Web, the dub yes. dub dub. Oh, yeah. You know, it was called Mosaic. It was called ARPANET. It had all kinds of different things. I mean, I, I used I was online in 1979 before there was an art an internet. You know, we, we used dial up. We connected to mainframes that were run by CompuServe or a, 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 a Delphi in Boston with a, a data general, uh, you know, computer or VAX, you know, so it was, it was totally, you know, like there was, there's been so much evolution. I, I don't worry too much or stress out too much about, you know, what it's going to be called as long as we're really clear with today's definition so that we have a clarity for people about what we mean when we say, uh, I had the same problem when I joined, by the way, with Deutsche Telekom with the word smart glass versus AR glasses. It was killer because I kept, I had to clarify that, a smart glass is simply a display that's projecting an image in front of your eye. It's, it doesn't have any sense of the real world. There's no spatial tracking. There's no localization, you know, but that became hard to explain to people because that those concepts were still new to a lot of people. Slam was a new concept for a lot of people, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a constant journey. I feel uh, that it's very important though to accept that that has to happen and that part of your communication needs to include clarity in the definitions of things so you avoid you getting traction, engagement from people because they're like, I don't know what this is. And it's interesting also to point out that Meta, as we all know, is going to make you know the release of the next Quest uh, on October 11th, right? And we know that the device has very high quality color pass-through camera on it. Right. So it's a, but the, everybody sees what they've been building as virtual reality headsets. But when you bring high fidelity color pass through camera into the display experience, now it can be just as functional as an AR device as it is as a VR device. And in fact, 
If you look at the journey that developers have taken with the pass-through API on the Quest platform, you can see the adoption rate of going from you know, just using it so that you can find your beer and your controller and, and making sure you don't you, you know, fall off your couch or you can find your keyboard on your desk to, holy cap, we can do all kinds of amazing stuff. We can start mapping the scene out. We can start anchoring stuff against the, where the room walls really are. It becomes a lot more of a hybrid. So now the question is, is this device going to come to the market and everybody's going to call it an XR device? Because it can merge both AR and VR user experiences. And in fact, I think a lot of VR developers will start adding AR as a feature kind of stuff to their you know, user experiences and kind of leaning in that direction. But I think at some point they're going to be like, well, why don't we just do all AR applications? We don't need to do anything with, you know, because, it, you know, VR, AR, VR, you know, it's like. <laughs> What do I, maybe I don't need to use, maybe it's a better experience if I use the user's real environment and anchor content against a real wall rather than put it in a virtual space that is not personal. And I think the desire for personalization and uh, it will really drive a lot of that. Um, people want to make it their own. They want their own virtual spaces, but they also would love to take advantage of their real world spaces, even replicate them in a digital context. And that personalization drive is what drives the use of Snapchat. Why it's mm -hmm. the number one AR platform in the world because it's about me personalizing and creating content. And I don't. And they don't call it AR, mm -hmm. right? They don't get it lost in the terms. That's a good point. Yeah. So, so like you say, mm -hmm. the users are going to decide the terms. Like the makers, we can suggest the terms, but if they don't adopt it. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I go back to some of the it. many science fiction books I've read. Maybe it will be called a, a was it a blurt, right? <laughs> you know, you know, they would no. look at was it with George Orwell or whatever. Some of the books have in the past they come up with you know special words, right? They have yeah. double speak kind of words. But I mean, I think ultimately we'll we'll find our uh, our own definitions for these things as they mature. Exactly. Exactly. Now you mentioned these classes. So, what is your feeling when we can get? Rid of mobile phones. You don't have to carry any more mobile phones, and we have something else. Not maybe glasses, but something else. So in 2018, I started drafting a LinkedIn article called the the um, the uh, de-evolution of the smartphone, and I was you know using history to sort of talk about how the smartphone came as an aggregation of devices and technologies, and then we're mm -hmm. going to deconstruct it over time into a set of devices again. And it was, I'm st I still want to publish it. I just keep holding off because the tech's not advancing as aggressively as perhaps I'd like. But if you look at um, uh, Apple's journey, I use it as a good proxy. So we've got, you know, a, a watch, which actually I'm charging right now, but, you know, the watch is an interaction device that um, has more versatility than people realize. Even today, in terms of developer stuff, there's, you know, an iOS 15 or watch OS 8, they, you know, made it so you could do an interaction like this to make a selection. You could do this to make a rotation. And that applies to a watch was designed as an accessibility function for people maybe who don't have another hand. But mm -hmm. that could mean that the watch could be a controller for a device application that's connected through a phone and mm -hmm. so or elsewhere, right? And I've actually worked with devices uh, where the band, you know, is tracking my muscles and electrical stimulation uh, of my, my fingers and then allowing me to interact with 2D applications, you know, flicking through slides in a PowerPoint by just doing this with my, my finger. No, no hand tracking, no, you know, uh, device-based hand tracking, right? It's just off the wrist. So 
hand as an interaction device without requiring the, the field of view of a hand tracking system is clearly the next phase, I think, for that. We've got mm-hmm. eye tracking coming on devices. We already had it on the HP Reverb G2 uh, Omnicept, and we'll have it on, 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 the, uh, on the next device from, from Meta. Um, mm-hmm. There's some concerns about the privacy issues with eye tracking that uh, Avi Zarbev, uh, sorry, Barzev have, has written really well about. Um, but functionally, if we do it right, this starts leaning into multimodal interaction models, which become very compelling. I want to build a point at the object in the real world and say, make that magenta, and it's able to actually compute where that desk is and then actually draw a magenta overlay on top of it, mm. right? And that, that's the kind of multimodal interaction that I want. So the missing piece there is, is AI. So we have really not tapped the full value of AI functions to really leverage and enable that kind of user experience. And I think that's going to be the, the required to make the transition from mobile phones to all-day wearables. Because in order for us to have an all-day wearable, even a simple one, let's say we take a Ray-Ban Stories device and we put a simple display on it, like mm-hmm. a smart glass display, right? So we just have some information in tip, I call it information at your eye tips. Um, that device needs to be able to deliver one to three discrete pieces of data um, as a moment-to-moment experience throughout the flow of your day. And that flow of data needs to be based on your context, on your personalization, um, you know, on your history of what's interesting and important to you, right? Mm-hmm. Not here's all the information and I have to pick it, but smart. It has to be intelligent. It has to know, hey, you're driving in a car, you're on your way to an appointment, you're walking inside of a building to a destination, you're going to get your lunch and pick up your Starbucks coffee or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So I think um, that's really going to be a key piece. I think the devices breaking apart, so spatial audio with the AirPods, the watch as an interaction device, the phone as a con- connectivity, compute, and maybe battery, um, and then a display, a s- display and sensors, right? Sensors mm-hmm. are the key because the sensors need to allow the human body to become a multimodal input and output. And so it's the combination of all these things that make the immersive metaverse experience possible on a headborne device. So the lightweight all-day wearable still needs to have that AI layer that is basically a set of deconstructed services that work together intelligently, not, mm. not app-based. So we have to stop building monolithic apps like we do for mobile phones, and we have to build services with very specific points of view. Um, when I joined Deutsche Telekom, I started studying microservices because I wanted to really understand what that model of development looks like. How do you scale and build, you know, I mean, uh, Uber is an application built on like, I think 2000 plus microservices. So Mm -hmm. um, it's a complete different way of thinking about developing software, even though in their world, it's a monolithic app from the user point of view, it could be completely deconstructed. and, And those services could be made exposed in very discreet ways. So I think that for the lightweight all-day wearable, which will probably be the journey that we start over the next couple of years, um, that's where AI deployment will start to become more um, utilized. But the maturity will come when we start really leaning into semantical scene understanding with six-off capable XR devices where I can hybridize the virtual content, perfectly fit it with the real-world environment, intelligently place content because it's cool that I can grab a digital object and snap it to the wall of my house, but I don't want to have to do that all the time. Just put it where it makes sense for you mm. for me. And then if I need to tweak it, okay, fine. But don't make me do all the work like I'm hand building the house. 
You know, that's, <laughs> that, you know that, so, so I think that that's the next level of maturity that we have to go through with AI. I, I, but I think the other problem of, well, I wouldn't say problem, but the other reason why phones themselves won't be completely removed um, is because the phone manufacturers don't want to get business on them. And so they're <laughs> going to design them as sort of a center point for this ecosystem for a variety of reasons, practical and some not necessary. I do think that there will be a transition to first wirelessly connected headsets that connect from this display system directly to a phone the, mm-hmm. in a one meter window of distance. All the devices that I've talked about will be within the, the, the meter of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll probably get intelligent and start leveraging edge functions off of either a computer, a PlayStation 5 or router with GPU and CPU in it, you know, and start to build the edge infrastructure in the home and tap mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. But eventually I think you'll see acceptance of having 5G or 6G or whatever, but 5G new radio as it's called or red cap um, devices, right? So it's maybe not um, going to be the highly immersive sixth off device. It's not going to be a, a quest, but maybe mm-hmm. say something like a Ray-Ban stories or an echo frames with, with a display integrated into it as an all day wearable, but that it's connected not through Bluetooth, but through cellular radio direct. And then it doesn't need a phone. Mm. And I think that's going to come, I'd say two to three years. Yeah. Quite soon. Yeah. I was expecting like maybe end of 2020, like 2029. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, not that long. <laughs> yeah. I really, I, I mean, the, there's so many smart people working on the problems that need to be solved. The display optics platforms have evolved massively in the last three years. There's so much really cool stuff. Some of it's been taking a decade, 15 years to come to fruition, but the, 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 the um, uh, acceleration of maturing it to a commercial standpoint has been massive the last three years. Um, I think um, the impact of meta bringing the level of camera pass through that we had on the uh, Varjo uh, headset um, yeah. to a, a more cost-effective business customer or prosumer user will have dramatic impact on all of the other manufacturers of VR headsets. I think by the end of next year, nobody will be making a VR headset that doesn't have pass-through camera on it. Um, mm. It wouldn't make sense, I think, to do that because the, the bar, the expectation level of, it's like the transition we went through with 3 off to 6 off VR, right? Mm. Nobody wanted to make a three-doff device because people want to be able to get out of their chair and move around and have it matter, right? And so that, that I think that journey, you know, will happen very quickly uh, with the introduction of the next meta device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so cool. I could listen to you talk all day. Yeah, um, I know, we're probably out of time, huh? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I still have two questions that I want to sure. ask. I'll give you I, short I wanna, answers too. I wanna wrap up. <laughs> no, this is so cool. Like, I've never felt so dumb, but also so enlightened at the same time. So thank you for sharing. Um, okay, well, first, let me, so let me, let me go back to what you said last, which is, because uh, you mentioned, so we have these separate pieces and the thing that's required to connect them is the next level AI. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're missing. I think it's a huge missed opportunity so far. Sure. But then what I'm wondering is, 
like in those old movies, you have like, I don't know, Aliens or 2001 even. Uh, they have all this world conquering technology, but they still have 1970s keyboards and PCs with the big monitors. Right. I'm wondering, similarly, to get to the level of AI that you're talking about, which is able to recognize even what you're doing visually yeah to recognize and identify and label correctly what you're doing right by the time that ai comes wouldn't we already be the, the hardware wouldn't that already be like in contact lens for example or even neural inside the brain devices i i so practically speaking, I do believe that contact lens uh, developers like Mojo Vision um, are very intelligently thinking about what do we do when we're eye tracking? How do we relate eye tracking to um, the real world and, and to intelligently display the right kind of information in the right place? That's another part of it, right? Because the way that they're rendering that, they have to make sure they're not obscuring important things. So it's got to be done very, very intelligently. Um, I do think they're going to push that envelope very much so. I, I would say to you that the fact that we have multimodal input capable devices is going to very rapidly drive the uh, adoption of intelligently understanding what the user's doing. Um, and we do that by not only semantically parsing the scene, but we semantically parse what the user's saying. We start to recognize mannerisms and gestures of hand. There's lots of work already done in that space. It, most, if you ask most people what AI is, they're going to say computer vision and machine learning, right? And that's about all they know of AI and robotics maybe. Um, but the reality is that AI is a descriptive term that describes like 50 plus subfields of, of, of reasoning um, technologies, right? And um, I think fundamentally we start with um, advancing on things like um, domain expertise, taking the knowledge of a person and, and compartmentalizing that and, and, and codifying that so that we can scale it. Um, AI allows us to scale a human being. We cannot scale ourselves, practically speaking, other than doing one-to-many presentations. We cannot do many-to-many -many presentations as a human being, right? I can only have one conversation at a time. But mm -hmm. if I could take my intelligence and my domain expertise about a topic and make that available, and we see that with customer service troubleshooting systems, chatbots today, but imagine taking the very specific knowledge of myself and turning it into something that you can access. That will be the next journey with domain expertise um, because we have a problem that we have to address, which is the aging out of people's expertise on, on, on topics and, and, uh, um, and, and um, experiences that are just not being trained you know, to the next generation. So that knowledge gets lost and it doesn't get usable. And, but also the issue of making it globally accessible and scaling that person's value is important, but also even just scaling the who I am part. I'm very interested in being able to create a, um, a, a simulacrum of myself that you can have a conversation with when I'm not around. Um, and um, I'm exploring some, some interesting journeys that I want to show next year um, uh, where I can demonstrate with today's technology how possible it is to do that. Uh, very quickly, I also tell you to focus on what's happening with large language models. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that people are doing with Dolly 
um, you know, which is an image generation uh, tool. But think about the idea that you start intertwining all of these really interesting uh, technical advancements that people are doing and building a pipeline of, of, of experience. So because um, of time, I won't get into the details of it, but I, I would say a simple example might be if I use some um, uh, AI to do scene recognition and to create a caption for a photograph, uh, a lady with a dog carrying a parasol walking on a beach midday. Um, and that's the caption that's generated by AI, you know, uh, machine learning on um, processing an image. And then I take that text and I pump it into a system that can then generate an image. I could literally clone an image and it's like a whole nother type of style transfer. So if I can imagine that I wanted to take my home, um, scan it with something like room plan, get the geometry of it and then say, make it look like I'm on Mars then I have a Martian house that I've made from my real world home. And then I can push that into a metaverse experience to open standards um, and, uh, and experience that and share it with others. So there's some really quick stuff that, you know, so procedurally generated metaverse experiences that are driven from real world content is going to be a huge accelerator because the development costs of building brand new assets was one of the biggest blockers for VR. It cost so much money to make a 3D asset that was optimum enough to run in a VR headset that people didn't do it for fun. They did it for work. They did it for business. Uh, they did it for a game, but they didn't do it just because they could whip it out like this. And I think that is where we're headed in the very short term uh, over the next year. And that's going to really blow people's mind when they start seeing that the power of those other types of uses of AI technologies. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, I, I'd like to ask something <laughs> philosophical. The very first thing you said, I hope I'm quoting you correctly. The very first thing you said was you enjoy working with new emerging technologies to improve human communication. I believe Correct. that's what you said. Okay. What? Okay. Then my question is, do you think it's possible for that curve to peak or will it just go forever? Meaning, is it, is, it, is it possible for human communication to have already been at its most efficient? Is it possible that we overdo it? Meaning, we, these new metaverse technologies separate people rather than bring people together, for example. I, I, so it's possible for us to have that dystopian result, but I think that naturally people will be a little bit more mindful. Um, there's a ton of opportunities. Look, simple real-time language translation um, in a metaverse experience, like as a, sta a universal standard, if we could just simply, we have all that tech, it sits today in many instances of it. But if I could just build any metaverse experience and then guarantee that regardless of your native language, we can have a free flowing conversation. That's a huge game changer, right? That will huge. change the whole school system, basically. Like why you study different languages in the school. If you everything. Can. Yeah. yeah. Might, might lead to more loss of language, unique languages, or might lead to just more cultural understanding, more mm -hmm. comfort, more mm -hmm. sense of equality and presence with each other maybe a more emotional and positive connection between people who don't feel comfortable because they don't understand each other's languages. So I think that that's a simple example. Um, mm. 
Okay, that, that proves that we have really meaningful. Peaked. That proves we haven't peaked yet, because I, I yeah. would argue that that is better than where we are today. Correct. Is it possible that we there is a peak, or is it going to be continuous improvement? I, I think where we've peaked a bit is on the noisy social media ecosystem, and so <laughs> um, you know what's what's a bit problematic for me is when I started with the internet, it was all about the quality of the signal to noise ratio. Websites were meaningful. Yes. Content was meaningful. And now it's completely the other way around. And um, I get frustrated with search engines. Um, when I go into a platform like LinkedIn, which is mostly supposed to be meaningful content, yeah. um, have a very high signal to noise ratio. And it feels like I'm still trying to search YouTube for videos again. Um, and I can't really create any kind of tangible longevity in the value of the information flow. I think that creates an opportunity for me to be able to go into, say, um, uh, unroll a Facebook feed and find the meaningful information about a person's life and then turn that into something that you can re-experience. Basically, get to know who that person was. You could tap mm -hmm. the value of the, the timeline of their um, their experiences and even codify that into something that you could have a conversation with that you could and you could make queries of. You could learn more about family members or 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 friends that or people that you went to high school with that are no longer alive or whatever. Um, I think there's a lot of value still and to take these noisy um, uh, fire hoses. Literally, Twitter used to call their API fire hose because that's how it felt. Right? It was like. <laughs> Um, to take those platforms like Snap, Twitter, Instagram, and to mine them for meaningful information, to, to find the, the real highlights. Um, okay. I don't think we, by, by any stretch of the imagination, tapped what's possible with human-to-human communication. But we, what we need to do is a democratic experience. Okay, Terry, this has been a truly uh, enlightening. So thank you so much for giving My us My pleasure. Time. I appreciate the opportunity. And Great questions. Well, we got to do this <laughs> I, again. I have still one. I have still one. Uh, okay, go on, Matthias. Like Terry has these beautiful colors in the background and also this nice blue shirt. So what's yeah. the story of this shirt? So, this, I, so I, work, I work as a mentor at Hubrum. So oh, okay. Hubrum is Deutsche Telekom's technology incubator. We work with startup companies. We do programs around different technology topics, explore and accelerate the startups in those topics. Currently, we're working with Qualcomm and T-Mobile US uh, together doing a program around Qualcomm Snapdragon Spaces technology, uh, which we'll actually be showcasing uh, in the later part of November. Uh, the outcome of that program. And we've done programs in the past with Apple. We've done programs focused on edge computing, 5G, XR. Um, I'm trying to get an AI one going. Um, and we also, through Hubram, we do investment um, or we work with these startups to help find business relationships within or outside of Deutsche Telekom. So we, it's, it's more than just a technology exploration, but a, a more holistic uh, approach. And so I love mentoring. Um, and sharing what I can and, and trying to inspire and support uh, the startup companies that go through programs. And uh, I've been doing that since uh, 2017, really having a good time. Um, the background is actually a corporate uh, video loop <laughs> that I've <laughs> repurposed. Uh, but actually what I'm, I, I want to do is make that a real-time 3D toy. 
you know, I want to start using some, some uh, tools to do that with Zoom, but unfortunately the APIs aren't there yet. So uh, I'm working on some tricks to make that happen. Awesome. Nice, nice. And you have to come back next year to tell us about your many to many communication. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I will say I'm working on showcasing that at the AWE conference next year. I already have a slot um, okay. scheduled with them for, for that. That's my target. Maybe in the USA. There. Yeah. Oh. In the USA. Yeah. Okay. I need the time. I wanted to do it for the EU event, but um, I, I need more time. I'm, I've been on the road too much. <laughs> <laughs>